I hope you're uh, already open with your Bibles or with your instruments at 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 5. You'll see that I uh, called the uh, sermon The Healing Power of Church Discipline. Uh, But I need to set this up a little bit. I'm not going to do this every time, but the last time that we were together, it was two weeks ago when I was here, uh, I talked about the fact, you'll remember, uh, most of you were here, I mentioned that, have you ever thought about it, the Apostle Paul never wrote anything. I'm teaching through the writings of the Apostle Paul, but he never wrote anything. And then you know where I'm going to go from there. What happened was he would have someone called an amanuensis. That's just a fancy word for sort of a secretary, but he would have been a special person, remember? He would have been almost like an artist. Uh, He would have been incredibly smart and understood uh, the language that Paul was speaking. He was probably, uh, in this case, speaking in Greek uh, language for the sake of the letter going to the Corinthian church. And this man would have carefully written down with the right kind of grammar and everything all that Paul was saying so that it could be understood and read to other churches and everybody would understand it. So he would be behind the desk someplace uh, and they would have all kinds of scrolls on the desk and lots of ink and, and ready to go. And the Apostle Paul would have been probably standing up and walking around in the room where they're in. Uh, thinking about what he wanted to say to the Corinthian church about some of the problems, especially that was happening in the church. And so he would have been uh, moving about, and this amanuensis would have been able with the grammar, that's why I talk about the Greek grammar a lot, to even get the emotions in. This was a very emotional event for the Apostle Paul. And uh, so I just go that far again because I want you to have that in your mind as the picture of what's happening here while this is being written and now we're studying it. Now, it's, it's also important uh, what the real problem in the church was that we're going to study today. It's a problem of sexual sin. And it's, it's important that we see the real problem regarding sexual sin and what it was in the Corinthian church. Now, practically speaking, uh, his, the, the uh, sexual sin that was being practiced literally shocked Paul. It was incest, something that even the pagan community in Corinth uh, considered unspeakable. Cicero was born 100 years before Jesus set foot on this earth, and he stated that incest was an incredible crime and practically unheard of. Both Leviticus and Deuteronomy forbade such a relationship, which carried a curse for those who practiced it. Deuteronomy 27.20, Cursed is the man who sleeps with his father's wife, for he dishonors his father's bed. Or Leviticus 18.8, Do not have sexual relations with your father's wife that would dishonor your father. It's hard to even imagine such a thing. The Corinthian culture was an extremely sexually oriented culture with multiple arrangements within marriage and with both homosexuality and child molestation being common and approved. A well-known practice reads this way. Mistresses we keep for the sake of pleasure, concubines for the daily care of the body, but wives to bear us legitimate children. So it would be correct for me to characterize it this way. Paul is hot 
with anger. Not just, now listen carefully to this, not just about the particular sin, but the attitude of those in the church who are allowing this sin without any condemnation. He even accuses those in the church as being arrogant, proud that they're allowing such a practice. So here's the dilemma for me this morning regarding the exposition of what Paul is dictating to his amanuensis that will be read in to the church in Corinth and other places also, including here this morning. So here's the question. Are the Corinthian Christians prideful in spite of what is going on among them? Or are they prideful because of what is going on among them? Is it a sort of a case celeb thing? In other words, are they being tolerant Or has this become for them an example of asserting their freedom as forgiving Christians? That was a problem in Rome, especially. So are they simply acting in grace? Or are they abusing the amazing grace demonstrated in their undeserved salvation, the forgiveness of the cross? After all, grace covers all sin, doesn't it? That's what Paul Paul wrote about in in the book of Romans, where people, we need to sin more, because if you sin more, then there'll be more grace. And uh, Paul uses a term in the Greek, if you've been here a long time, you know what it is, meganoito, he says. And say, what does that mean in English? That's the stupidest thing I ever heard. That's what it means in English. (laughs) To fully grasp the meaning of the sermon, we must understand that Paul is very concerned about the health of the church in Corinth. Now, you have to keep that on your, the, the forefront of your mind all the way through the sermon. To fully grasp the meaning of the sermon, we must understand that Paul is very concerned, number one concern, about the health of the church in Corinth in this case. Paul was attacking the misrepresentation of God's grace that was putting the church into a downward spiral regarding purity and even false teaching. Now, our culture today has eliminated any idea of moral absolutes. We've forgotten God, and everything now is relative according to how I feel. So when we talk about biblical morality, the culture rejects us or even cancels us these days. But the Corinthian culture, even the Corinthian culture, would have been shocked at the lack of any moral norms in our culture today. One of my favorite Christian thinkers and authors made a comment this week saying that in our speech, we must avoid talking about marriage as if it could be something other than a man and a woman coming together in love to defeat loneliness, to grow together in grace, and birthing children when possible so that life continues on planet Earth until Jesus returns. No matter the language, there is no other kind of marriage according to God, our Creator. Most of you know this news story. I'll just mention it almost in passing. Uh, The young man, a student in a Catholic school. This just happened in the last few weeks. He's expelled from the school, couldn't even graduate because he said in a Catholic school, 
He said that God made us male and female and that males cannot become women and females cannot become men. And so he was eliminated from the school. So there are some things that can destroy the possibility of spiritual growth in a church or even cause a church to no longer be what the Bible calls the body of Christ. And that's Paul's concern. That's the main point here of the passage that we're studying, the purity of the church. Now, again, going back to the room, Paul is walking around the room. Uh, He's really exercised about all of this happening, but he hasn't got to this really big problem yet that's a major problem. And if you remember last time, I imagined him going over to a corner and sort of squatting against the wall and his head in his hands, and and he, he knows what he has to say but he's incredibly emotional about it because he truly loves these people. And so as he stands up and he nods to the amanuensis uh, to start again, uh, he says this. This was from last week's sermon. I put it on the screen so you don't have to even look down at it. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, a few verses. At this point, Paul says, I'm writing this. Just try to imagine he's so... He's almost in tears, if not in tears. I'm writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Even if you had thousands upon thousands of guardians, 10,000 teachers in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ, who is Jesus, I became your father. I became your father through the gospel, the good news about Jesus. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me, become like me in every way, and like the teaching. Some of you have become arrogant, as if I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord is willing, and then I'll find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have for the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. And then he says these words, and they're very strong. What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a rod of discipline, or shall I come in love And with a gentle spirit. And then look at your Bibles, verse 1. Paul says, it is actually reported, meaning that it's spreading everywhere. And he said, it's actually reported that there's sexual immorality. Uh, That's the word porneia, by the way, in the Greek. Now, porneia originally meant going to a prostitute, but it became to be the word we use today for pornography and for all kinds of sexual sins. So Paul is saying it's actually reported that there is porneia, sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A brother is sleeping with his father's wife. Now, if you're following in your Bible, it probably just says a man because that's what the Greek does say, but he's a Christian man. That's why Paul is so upset here. A brother is sleeping with his father's wife, and you're proud? Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man, the the brother who has been doing this? Now, there is much we don't know and some we do know. We don't know if his father had died or divorced the woman. We do know she was not a believer or Paul would have pointed out their need to remove her from the church also. The real shocker is that the members of the church were proud of what was being allowed. And when we as Christians stop grieving over sin, especially in the church, we are heading for trouble. 
Sin should bother us terribly. I once heard in a meeting I was in, Billy Graham say that he was personally shocked at what he can see and no longer blush over. That was many decades ago. Probably most of us watch things on TV or media that Christ died for and our ancestors would have been deeply embarrassed over. Oh, and how I wish that I could say I am not guilty of such a thing. I mean, it's so easy to get caught up in all this kind of thing. Have you read Tozer's book? <laughs> I pushed it so much, I know. The Knowledge of the Holy, The Attributes of God. Or you could go on, I did a thing called the Real God series, which is all about the att attributes of God. Uh, Tozer's theme in the whole book, it starts right at the beginning, is what comes into the mind of a man or a woman when they think about God is the most important thing about that person. What we think about God, what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Nothing is more important than that. In the beginning of this letter, Paul was worried about some in the church that had fallen for worldly wisdom rather than holiness. 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 It's not a word you hear much, even in church services today. To be holy means to be set apart for God's purposes. It means that we care far more about what God thinks about us than what anyone else thinks about us. Holiness means we are so different from those who do not have Jesus as their Lord and Savior that it is common for some to ask about our lives, how we're able to live as we do. Paul started off the letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, with these words, verse 2. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ, the Messiah, whose name is Jesus. Now, you'll remember if you were here, we got to the word sanctified, and I stopped, and there's three important words, justified, sanctified, and glorified, three of the most important words we must understand when it comes to the Christian life. To be justified means that you're saved. You're born again of the Spirit of God. It means that it's, God looks at you as if you were totally righteous, just as you had never sinned. He sees his son when he sees you. That's an amazing thing to think about. But sanctified is in a, the grammar is being sanctified. Sanctified is a process of becoming perfect. But we'll never be perfect in this life. That's not until we're glorified and in heaven. But we should be getting better. <laughs> we should be changing much. And so uh, Paul is writing to those who are being sanctified. In other words, the Holy Spirit is working in their lives in the church in Corinth. And, and so he says to the church of God in Corinth, to those being sanctified progressively in Christ, and that's the word for Messiah and Jesus, and called to be his holy, there it is, people, set apart people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord, who is Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, their Lord and ours. You see, right now, he's, he's saying immediately, you may be a small church in Corinth, you may be a small church in, in Sarasota, Florida, but you're part of the whole church, and we're all one, and therefore, how each part of those small churches come together is very, very important. Now, here's my message about this. Uh, it's sort of been the theme of my preaching for a lot of decades. You can't just come to church 
You can't. You can't just come to church. We are the church. The building's not the church. And you can't just come to church. You come to church to be built up so that you can use your gifts and know one another and go out into the world and reach people for Christ in all kinds of different ways. So you don't just come to church to see what the pastor's going to say about this passage or this difficult word or something like that and rate the sermon. You come to take notes, to think deeply about what you're hearing and ask God what you're supposed to do about it. And then you're to do all you can to make your, let yourself be known in the gathered gathering, in the gathering, and also to come to know others. And it should be hard to get people to leave even so we could fill the parking lot back up again. So Paul's big emotional problem here is the fact that some in Corinth, even many, are not representing the family of God and have not separated morally from the local culture and are justifying their unholy lifestyle as being just fine, even though it went against all biblical morality. I don't think I've ever used this word about the Apostle Paul ever. But Paul is wasted here. I mean, he's wasted over this. Here's an important quote from a great expositor, Gordon Fee. It is this lack, both of a sense of sin and therefore of any ethical consequences to their life in the spirit, that marks the Corinthian brand of spirituality is radically different from that which flows out of the gospel of Christ crucified. And it is precisely this failure to recognize the depth of their corporate sinfulness due to their arrogance that caused Paul to take such strong action as is described in the next sentences. That's verses 3, 4, and 5. It's as if Paul is saying loudly with tears, I thought you were Christians. Jesus died for you so that you could live for him. What is wrong with you? Don't you know who you are in Christ? God has wonderful plans for you. So grow up and imitate Jesus rather than imitating the ungodly culture around you. And then look at verse 3. The first word is not in most Bible translations. It's just the word I. Because if you just read it the way it's written, in most translations, Paul says, for my part. But he's making a, a comparative statement here. He's saying, I, for my part, compared to you who are puffed up with pride and self-sufficiency, I, for my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. I'm for you. And as one who is present with you in this way, I've already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. This is a powerful statement from Paul. He's saying that I may not actually be there, but I am there because I'm the, I'm the one that led most of you to Christ. I'm the one that taught you for 18 months almost every day. And so I'm saying that what you're doing is wrong. So verse 4 says, when you are assembled, he's really saying you have to call an assembly. This is, a, this is not a private matter. 
There are some things within the church body or there are private matters. The elders have to take care of that, that kind of thing. This is not that. This is everybody knows about this. So when you're assembled together, this is to be public and uh, in the church, public in the church, but people are going to know what's happening. And he says, so when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit and in the power of our Lord Jesus is present, he's talking about the Holy Spirit power. Paul's authority is being really... He's really using his authority here. Hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. So that, that's the most important word. So that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. For Paul, it was not the sexual immorality that concerned him, but the fact they were doing nothing about it. Just accepting it without any kind of judgment or warning. The reason Paul wants the man put out of the church is so he can be disciplined and brought back into the church. It's important to realize that any of us could commit terrible sin. But if we do, we need to repent. 1 John 1.9, I quote that more than any other verse, I think, in the Bible over the years. It says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's written to Christians if we as a Christian will confess our sins, it's assuming we're still going to sin, hopefully less and less as we grow in Christ, but we're still going to sin, and so we need to confess our sins and say we're sorry, and then God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us uh, from all unrighteousness. And you know what I like to say, if we could say a, a, a thousandth of a second after we confessed our sin, God, do you remember that sin I just confessed? He'd say, no, I don't see it at all. That's amazing, the forgiveness. It just should totally change our lives. But if we refuse to confess and repent before the church, you see why we must know one another and know all about one another and let each other, let us ourselves be known? It's so important that we see that. And so if, if we refuse to confess and repent before the church, if we put on masks, and, and aren't really who we really are to everybody else. If we do that, then God will discipline us and possibly even bring us to heaven prematurely. I mean, we'll see that. Wait till we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where Paul says that that's exactly what was happening in the church because of the way they were disrespecting each other and the Lord during the communion time. So we can't lose our salvation. I think that's pretty obvious, but we can shame the name of Jesus, destroying our legacy while still being welcomed into heaven. That's my biggest fear. It really is. I've had people say, well, you're afraid of that? Yes, I am. I don't want to ruin my legacy. I could make a list, most of us could, of people who, I could make a list of people who I learned so much from, who had such great ministries, so wonderful, some I was friends with. And now they're in heaven, but before they got there, they did something that just shamed the gospel. And I can't read the writing anymore. Oh, I know there was nothing wrong. They wrote all the right things. I just can't do it anymore. It just breaks my heart. I don't want to be like that. If they could do that, faithful men of God and women, then I could too. So since I know I'm taking heed when I stand lest I fall, I don't want to fall. We all should be like that, but we need each other. We can't do that all alone. Nevertheless, the end, purpose, and attitude, and practice for church discipline is always toward restoration. William Barclay puts it this way. 
always at the back of punishment and discipline in the early church, there is the conviction that they must seek not to break, but to make the person who has sinned. So here's some thoughts about this. This man's sin was affecting the whole church. We'll soon see in our study the many other problems in the Corinthian church, but this particular sin was the catalyst that led to these other problems. And another thought. The ultimate reason for such discipline is remedial, not judgment. In other words, he was turned over to Satan, put back into the world in order for him to return to a loving community where the power of the Lord Jesus is a regular part of corporate life. And a final thought just on this part. The fact that today, when church discipline is enacted, the person can simply go down the street to another church who will accept him or her without question, that fact demonstrates how fragmented we are. Our country, the world, needs a church that is of one mind, so that should someone be removed because of their sin, infecting a local expression of the church, that person could be genuinely, genuinely restored through a discipline process that changes his or her life. But for that to happen, frankly, we must have a revival of commitment to Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit where the majority of Christians no longer attend church but truly become the church, telling everyone about the only hope there is and the only way to heaven, Jesus Christ and him crucified, dead, buried, resurrected, alive again. And he's the perfecter and finisher of our faith, as the book of Hebrews said, and he cleanses us from all sin. Now, if you were here when I recommended that we all read the book Not a Fan by Kyle Eidelman, it's another one of the books I've pushed a lot, and a lot of you have told me you have, and I do sign my name often now. You know, Pastor Carl Dixon, not a fan. And uh, so the book is an amazing book. But if you read that book, then I can say that we need a revival so that there are no more fans filling seats in the church out of obligation, but instead we're all on the field sweating it out for the good news of Jesus. You see, this is the workout before the game. This isn't the game. The game starts when we leave here. But we work out here. We learn here. We get built up here. We pray for one another. We learn about each other here. Now, those in the Corinthian church have been bragging about their extreme grace. Look at verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know? Don't you know? Don't you know? <laughs> Nine times he uses that phrase. Nine times. It really means you know this, don't you? I can still hear my mother's voice. You knew you shouldn't put your finger in that plug. <laughs> you know? <laughs> but since he told me not to, I did it anyhow. <laughs> And so Paul is saying, don't you know, you know this. Now, some of you don't know this. I'm older, and, and uh, I grew up in a house where there was nothing. The best smell in the world was when my mother baked bread. And so I know about leaven and yeast and all that. Today we know about Publix. <laughs> so, 
But don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new batch. Now, my translation says a new unleavened batch, and that's true, but unleavened isn't in the language. It's just it's more direct than that. Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new batch, as you really are. He's saying become who you are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, as John the Baptist said, he has been crucified for us. Notice the word us that I use because that's the way the grammar works out. He's not just saying just for you or you or you. No, for all of us, he's been crucified for us. Therefore, let us keep the festival. In other words, he's talking about Passover, but let us celebrate not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, that's our old self, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And so, as I've already sort of said, this is a reference to the Passover feast. There was to be no leaven or yeast associated with the meal, the Passover. Yeast here represents evil or sin. Jesus died after the Passover lambs have been sacrificed. Jesus died during the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. In preparation for Passover week, all leaven, all yeast was to have been removed from everyone's home. It was a picture of purity, metaphorically ridding the home of any possible evil. So like leaven can permeate the church in the same way a rotten apple eventually ruins all the apples in the barrel. As Christians, that is how we're to live every day. We're to eliminate the old yeast of malice and wickedness, replacing it with sincerity and truth. Therefore, such sins as incestuous marriage and the like cannot be tolerated or left undisciplined or the church will be infected. Notice the coupling of the word sincerity with truth. One can be sincerely wrong. I can think of a whole bunch of names. Putin, he's very sincere. He's very wrong. And you could think of all kinds of leaders throughout history and even around today. If we stray from God's truth, we can be sincerely wrong. And without the truth, sincerity is almost always wrong. Therefore, the urgent need for gospel truth. Our Passover lamb, Jesus, died to deliver us from the bondage of sin. When God's people left Egypt, they were being delivered from the bondage of an evil Pharaoh and his power over them. We have been freed by sin's power. Actually, Paul teaches in Romans that we no longer have to sin. Well, we're not going to stop sinning. We're still, we still have a sin nature. But we now have the ability, if you're controlled by the Holy Spirit, we have the ability not to sin and to make the right choices each time. So we've been freed from sin's bondage, from sin's power over us, and must now avoid sin and live in obedience to God's command. For us to sin is to defile God's temple. Paul said that we're God's temple, the Holy Spirit is in us, and we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. But also we as a church gathered in a different way are also the temple of the Holy Spirit. We can learn things together in this environment because the Holy Spirit's working among all of us that you can't learn anyplace else. So in the temple of Judaism, 
There was not to be anything to defile the temple. That's why Jesus drove the money changers out of the temple. It is to be the same in our individual lives. Purity and holiness should be top priority for us as Christians, impacting every corner of our lives. Now look at verse 9, 10 here. Paul says, I wrote you in my previous letter, in my previous letter. We don't know where that letter went. We don't know what was in it, but we do know that there was a misunderstanding because of what he wrote. And so he says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Now, this would have really stopped them. I wish I had been there when it was being read to them. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave the world. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, speaking to Christians specifically, he tells us, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. They're all idolatry. And so that's within the church. And we understand uh, this kind of problem when dealing with alcoholism or drug addiction or even sexual addiction, if there is such a thing. But do we see the folly, the danger of materialism, of idolatry, the desire for more things just for the sake of having them? All of these things, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil, all of these things. Do we realize the danger of that? It's called idolatry. Any of those things become an idol. Can become anything, the most innocent thing that isn't good or bad. For me, when I became a Christian, cars, that was my idol. I bought two new cars every six months. What a waste of money. But I, you know, and I didn't buy just cars, I bought cars. Signature series, Lincoln Continental. Looks like a hearse if 1981. And, uh, and all of that kind of thing. I had a friend, uh, Lieutenant Commander Chuck Stratton. Some of you might remember him. He's in heaven now. He was a helicopter pilot on the Laity. The Laity was uh, um, a... Um, what kind of ship was that? Come on. Aircraft carrier. Yeah, I've got a picture of it right in front of me. Chuck's picture's here, and there's the Laity. And I asked him one time, I says, Chuck, where's the Laity now? He says it's Toyotas. <laughs> I mean, all of these things that we give our lives to are temporary, and we need to understand that. doesn't mean we can't have nice cars. I'm not saying anything like that. But Paul is saying in verse 11, he says, but now I'm writing you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, a fellow Christian, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, they were slandering him, a drunkard or a swindler. And then he says to them, do not even eat with such. Now, it's very important we understand what that, those few words mean. Do not even eat with such people. He's talking about Christians. What's he mean, don't eat? Well, eating together in that culture, still the same today in Arab cultures and go to Israel and all that kind of thing, represented forgiveness and fellowship. And when they had communion, they always ate together. We'll learn that in, first, in chapter 11. Uh, they always ate together a meal. And communion was considered, in a sense, a meal too. So don't have, and don't, don't let people like that, you just don't want to meet together with them uh, in forgiveness and fellowship unless they repent. 
Now, now, just so you don't misunderstand, Paul is not saying we're to ignore a Christian who struggles with these sins, trying to overcome them. That's totally different. He is saying those, like the man that should be put out of the church, those who persist in their former way of life with no signs of repentance, those are the ones we don't have any fellowship with until they repent. And it should help us to be reminded Paul is writing to a specific church gathered about a specific problem that may not be the case in other parts of the Christian community. And so listen to the last two verses, 12 and 13. Paul says, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? You see, what had happened with that previous letter? They took it to mean that they weren't to have anything to do with people outside the church. So they became separatists, and they had their own little thing, but their own little thing wasn't going so good. And so Paul is just saying, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church. Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. So expel that wicked person from among you. Uh, I uh, wasn't here last week because I was in Orlando. I did make it to the second service, but just to, to hear the sermon. But I was in Orlando uh, where a friend was uh, being made one of the more powerful bishops of the Episcopal Church. A lot of you know Justin. I think Jim said something about him in the sermon on Sunday. Uh, I met Justin when he was a teenager and witnessing on the street, and he had long hair and earrings and stuff, so obviously he wasn't a Christian. <laughs> Turned out I was wrong, and he started to, to uh, tell me about Jesus too. And uh, uh, so I discipled him. He's now 49 years old. I discipled him all through all through his uh, lifetime, through his uh, college education, his double um, seminary. He got two master's degrees in the time most people get one, and then he went to a Ivy League school and got a double major PhD, and he teaches in seminaries. He's written 20 books, and he's an Episcopal priest with a wonderful family. Uh, he's traveled with me to South Sudan. His wife did too. He's got two teenage girls. It's just a, it was a, one of the most wonderful experiences of my life, even though I'm not into all the liturgy, but nevertheless, uh, he's in the right place for him. Um, there was a pastor there, a black pastor, who spoke the main service. The, the service was three hours long. There were 2,000 of us in this church. And, uh, oh, we sang. It was just glorious. And the black pastor preached. And he was from another country, and he was really awesome. Wow, I wish he was staying. I'd like to have him here. And uh, he was looking right at Justin. I was in what they call the friends and family section in the very front of the whole thing, and Justin was just over uh, about 25 feet that way as he's listening before he's going to be finally ordained. And the pastor is preaching, and he's talking to Justin, but all the rest of us too. And he says at one point, he says, Justin, I had a... Uh, a couple come to our church recently. They left their church and came to our church. And I got to know them a little bit. And then I asked them uh, uh, that um, I asked them, why did you leave your other church and come to my church? And he says, they said to me, we left the other church because in every sermon the pastor talked about the news. We have come here because we want to understand God's word. And then he looked at Justin and he put his finger out in this fabulous voice. 
He says, Justin, preach the word. People need the word. They're hungry for the word. Forget about the news. No, I may say a little bit about it, but not much. I mean, we're not the judge of the society around us. We are to be a shining light of holiness. A city on a hill, as one president said. It's from the Sermon on the Mount in many ways. We are to be this light in the office, in the neighborhood, walking the halls of our schools, or playing our sports. It should be obvious to all that uh, we are very different than the surrounding society. If they take our lifestyle as a judgment, we can't do much about that. And that'll happen. And I can tell you stories about people who are Christians and stayed Christians in their business environment and lost their jobs and all kinds of other things. But our attitude to the unsaved community should be very full of grace and mercy. Remember this statement, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Now, who said that? Stephen. Stephen said that. Stephen was the first martyr of the church. He's out, in, he's out among the non-believers, and he's telling them the gospel. And the apostle Paul is there, only he wasn't the apostle Paul. He was the Pharisee Paul. And he urged them all on as they stoned Stephen to death, the first martyr of the church. And just before he died, he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not what they were doing. And he was quoting Jesus. And it changed Paul's life. I believe that was the main thing that really changed his life. And now we're studying what, he has, what he's writing. Jesus said the same thing in the cross, and I couldn't exaggerate the horrificness of the cross. And Jesus looked out totally naked and shamed on that cross among two thieves. And he looks out and he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. <laughs> I don't want to be known for what I'm against. Largely, that's going to be obvious. But for who I am in Christ. So... We are not to judge the world, but we are to judge the behavior of those in the church who call themselves Christians. That is Paul's pastoral heart, his desire to protect his, this infant church from the ever-threatening infection of the world. Now, many among us have heard the word cancer uttered by a doctor. Barclay writes, there are times when a cancer must be cut out. There are times when drastic measures must be taken to avoid infection. It's the same in the church. So my closing question, and we're done. What task has God called you to? That's my closing question. What task has God called you to? When I became a Christian, the church I was part of taught me that whatever God has for me, uh, whatever I'm doing in my life that God has for me, that's his will for my life. That's my task. I was a stockbroker, so I decided uh, that I would be a stockbroker who was a Christian. I would look for every opportunity to tell others about Jesus, but my priority was to do my job with excellence and integrity, to truly care for my clients, whether they were Christians or not. I found many asked me about the hope that they saw within me, including those I worked with and those I served by taking care of their money. We are to be in the world without the world being in us as the boat is in the water, but if you put too much water in the boat, it sinks. So I close with a verse that I think encapsulates all of this. Acts chapter 
20, verse 24. I put it on the screen in the New Living Translation. These are among the last words of the Apostle Paul, and they should be our words, even our theme for all of our lives. He says, but my life is worth nothing to me unless I use it for finishing the work assigned me by the Lord Jesus. What's the work? The work of telling others the good news about the wonderful grace of God. Let's pray. Father, it's amazing to me when I think about those decades ago becoming a Christian. I never would have thought that I'd be standing here this morning, and here I am. And Father, I know that if we'll do what's before us and see that as our calling, see that as our ministry, and if we'll uh, be in the world uh, but not of the world, that we will make a huge difference if every Christian did that. Just in our country alone, it could change the whole world. And so, Father, I pray that we'll, none of us here will be fans, but we're beyond the field fighting the good fight and doing it right until the end, hand in hand with each other as we pray for one another, come to know one another, gather together to be built up in the faith and then go out full of hope, knowing that you are in charge even when it sure looks like it, that you're not to some of us, but you are, and we know that. Thank you for your word. And I pray, Father, if there's anyone here who doesn't know the Lord Jesus yet or watching online, that they won't let this time slip by, but that they will just simply come and say, Dear Jesus, thank you for saving my life, for dying for my sin. I am a sinner. I need you. Please come into my life and change me. And I know that if anyone here or online uh, prays that, that you will save them for all of eternity and give them abilities they never had before. In Jesus' name.